kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. In fact, welcome to the Labor Day edition. Oh, no, Memorial Day edition of Auntie Nanny. Felt like the Labor Day edition. It's been a fun couple of weeks, and it's been a week since we were last on the air. Sorry about last week, guys. Like Very wrote in the chat, uh, you know, slave driving was happening, so I couldn't do a show. Uh, with me this evening is the most awesome producer and the only producer that I can't afford to pay and the best producer I've ever seen, Very. Hi, Very. How are you this evening? Oh, good. So been, you're been working on a... Making, yeah. yeah, you have. I was going to ask you about that. How's it going? Good. I haven't done this sort of woodworking for 15 years, so it's not the neatest job in the world, but... All the little flaws will make it, you know, mine, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And they're not flaws. They're they're marks of character. Yeah. They're yeah. unique. Just because you can see a little bit of light through the joints, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you... Once, you, a, once a Gorilla Glue it together, it'll be fine. Gorilla Glue's good stuff, man. That stuff's, uh... stuff is hard to get apart. It's... Harder to well, get yeah, apart. and the wood is walnut, right? Four millimeter thick walnut, and I'm, once I've sanded, I'm gonna varnish it, so it's gonna be like metal once it's done anyway. Right, true. <laughs> walnut is a very strong wood. And so. I discovered the the one centimeter long, two millimeter square, um, molybdenum magnets. I bought. Yeah, I need four to keep the back on. Ah. Well, if I used any more than that, I wouldn't have been able to open the back of them. Yeah, nobody wants that. You need to be able to change batteries out, otherwise you end up with like a... a well, it's a lipo Ego aisle, but... right. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you want to be it's able to... It's still nice to be able to open it up and show people, look, look, here, look what it looks like inside. Yeah. All nice and neat and... Because, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I do get people at vape meets asking mm -hmm. how to mod. So it's handy well, to have a mod you can open up easily and go, look, you should do this, this, and this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Oh, cool. 
Uh, Alex will be on at 7. I know some people listen just for the CASA update. So if, if you don't want to hear the usual cheerful news, <laughs> you can come back at 7 and Alex will join us for the CASA update, which is really good because I was like, I am sure he knows stuff that I don't, which not really a surprise. So uh, did anybody know that on May 21st, an armed man shot at the White House. Yep. See, I didn't. I didn't. Do you know how I found out? No. Vice News told me. All right. It was. It wasn't on any of the mainstream news around here. Yeah, it popped up within minutes of it happening in the UK. So yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Reuters and BBC. Thing. So. Yeah. Oh sure. What I'm saying is, it wasn't like front page news here. Yeah. The best part is when. They asked the Secret Service about it. The Secret Service was going, well, he has no tone, no known ties to terrorism. We still can't figure out what's going on. can't imagine why somebody would want to shoot at the White House. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. It's well, the modern age. There'll be a Secret Service agent that's now in therapy because of the stress <laughs> of having shot somebody. Um, quite quite probably, yeah. No, that is what happens these days. They Really? Yeah, policemen, everything. If you if you shoot somebody, you immediately get referred to a psychiatrist. Well, just in case you you have stress over it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I I would think shooting someone would be a stressful experience. Yeah, you know, unless they were really annoying, and then it might well be cathartic. Well, also also things like the Secret Service do that because you 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 want to make sure that you know employees aren't going gun happy. <laughs> Well, I guess, <laughs> I, I guess, I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is from Vice News. U.S. authorities say armed man shot at White House has no known nexus to terrorism. A Secret Service agent shot and critically wounded a man who pulled out a gun near the White House on Friday while President Barack Obama was out golfing, U.S. officials said. The White House went on lockdown after the incident, which took place off this just off 17th and East Street, close to what's known as South Lawn, just outside the home and office of the president. Around 3 p.m., a man toting a gun walked up to a checkpoint near the White House, ignored the uniformed Secret Service officer's order to drop the weapon. When the subject failed to comply with the verbal commands, he was shot at once by a Secret Service agent and taken into custody. The bullet struck the man in the chest, and he was later transported to the hospital in critical condition, according to the District of Columbia's Fire and Emergency Medical Services. Authorities are still trying to figure out the gunman's motive, but they don't suspect he's linked with organized terror groups. At this time, based on a preliminary investigation, there is no known nexus to terrorism. The man, who appeared to be in his mid-20s, walked to a gate of the White House holding a silver-colored gun pointed at the ground, said Brett Pavelka, a 26-year-old visitor from 26-year-old visitor from Texas who was near the south side of the White House. A couple of officers drew their guns, went right after him, and within two or three seconds we heard a gunshot, Holbika told Reuters. The Secret Service, which also guards other top dignitaries, Ng, said all those under its protection were safe, including Vice President Joe Biden. Well, thank God, huh? Um, but it did not say if Obama's family was at home at the time. Everyone in the White House is safe and accounted for. Community activist Akil Patterson told the Associated Press he was waiting in line at a security checkpoint when a guard shot had dropped to the ground. 
Patterson was at the White House to receive a presidential award recognizing his work with Baltimore teens. Patterson said the work seeks to get rid of the notion that gun violence is the answer. The incident came amid calls by lawmakers for an improved security system at the White House, which would involve hiring more staff and putting them through more rigorous training. Yeah, um, for some reason, this administration uh, has had more incidences. The guy who, you know, jumped the fence and ran into the White House, <laughs> walking around the White House with a gun, um, not with a gun, with a knife in 2014. That was a pretty bad incident. Um, it's just, it seems like it's all high profile stuff and there's, I don't know, there's like no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, well, everywhere gets the occasional, you know, breach. I mean, the Queen, the, the queen in the UK has had people break into the, um, <laughs> in her palace. One well, one one was just you know, broke in and was in her bedroom. <laughs> Speaking just of the queen. strange people who think it's a brilliant idea to break into somewhere where they're going to get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so, speaking of the queen, I uh, I saw one of your one of your lot of politicians there, one of your conservative party members said, um, "We can no longer tolerate people who loaf about and do nothing." Yeah. Right. And so somebody retweeted it with a picture of the Queen sitting on her throne. That was pretty funny. <laughs> um, well, conservative yeah. MPs, I mean, all they do is um, make money off the public. So, yeah, she yeah. get rid of all them, too. Okay, Stereo Dreamer says some crazy lady tossed an unidentified bag over the fence at the White House this afternoon. Yeah, see, that's what I don't get. Anything I want to know about what's really happening here, I've got to go to, like, RT America. Sometimes Zero Hedge has some pretty decent coverage. I've got to get it from The Guardian. I can never find out anything um, about what's happening in the U.S. through U.S.-based journalistic sources. It's almost... Mainstream news, and we've talked about this before, is almost word for word what you'll find on Voice of America. Well, that, sto that story hasn't cropped up on the BBC. Just have a look now. It's, it's, all, it's all Trump and Depp. Mm. <laughs> I, I am, honest to God, I'm so sick of hearing about Trump. I could cry. <laughs> and for anyone interested, Reason Magazine had a, a pretty interesting rundown of what happened at the Libertarian Convention. I know Gary Johnson won the Libertarian candidacy, but... What's interesting is he did not win the nomination his first time through. Oh, everybody has better coverage than us. Were you kidding? Um, yeah. No, you're right. Once they got rid of that ban on allowing propaganda to be, you know, given straight to us, we ended up with the same news that's on Voice of America, which is basically Voice of America used to not be able to allow, was not allowed to broadcast or show written journalism or any of that stuff to us. Um, Voice of America is about as exciting. As, well, actually, NPR is a little more exciting than the stuff that uh, shows up oh, the, on Voice the, of America. The interesting news report from that, that oh. I saw today was sure. the, the one about the hot dog vendor on Fox News. Don't know if you heard about that one. Yeah, I don't really watch Fox News. Uh, I don't. Yeah, well, this this guy so doesn't like Fox News. He shut his stand and avoided them rather than being anywhere near them. 
well. <laughs> it's quite funny. They were. I think they were actually. I think it was something to do. They were planning to do some story, and they're probably going to casually wander over and ask him questions. <laughs> but he saw them coming and just closed up his stand and pissed off. I'm good. I'll see you. <laughs> yeah. Rather than well, talk to Fox News. Well, I mean, that's that's your right. You're the yep. you're absolute right to protest any way you see. But so that made the news over here. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I don't know. I don't think any of the mainstream news coverage is good. Although I was pretty surprised earlier this year when they actually talked about the the nine eleven report and declassifying all those pages. I mean, and CBS News, was it 60 Minutes that did the report? And it actually wasn't horrible for mainstream TV journalism. Oh, and by the way, actually, um, did anybody in chat, did anyone in chat see the Ben Swan video about e-cigarettes? I'm... I'm going to dig it out now, so I don't know if anybody's seen it or not. Um, uh, yeah, hang on. If anybody hasn't seen it, I can grab it, and I'm sure Barry would be thrilled to play it. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Okay. Um, this link very is probably going to lead you right back to Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that is where I found it first. Actually, let me stick it here. I'm sticking it in just you and my, you, your chat with just me. And it's pretty good. It was about the first stream media report I ever heard or saw that was fair. And it's about 15 minutes, and yeah. If Ben Swan's going to talk fairly about e-cigarettes, I'm going to give him airtime. Well, the cause... FDA has been creating a new series of rules and regulations. Just need to get the volume sorted out. It's going to be just a second, guys. It's actually very good. And, you know, the man won two Edward R. Murrow well, awards. Go ahead. Right, ready to go. Ready. FDA has been creating a new series of rules and regulations to take e-cigarettes under its authority. But are the new rules actually creating more dangers for smokers? This is a reality check you won't see anywhere else. Now before we get into what the FDA is trying to do, it's important to understand the difference between a regular cigarette and an e-cigarette. With a traditional cigarette, the user lights tobacco on fire and then inhales the smoke. And it's not just the tobacco that's harmful, but dozens of chemicals and tar, which contain numerous carcinogens. Well, compare that to e-cigarettes, which first of all, vaporize e-liquid that contains nicotine and various additives, such as flavors. E-cigarettes are still fairly new, only about a decade old, so it's not known exactly with certainty how dangerous they might be. The rule also will allow the FDA to evaluate the ingredients of these additional tobacco products, how the products are made, and their potential impact on public health. Okay, but get this, the UK's Royal College of Physicians has stated that the risks of e-cigarettes are actually unlikely to exceed 5% of the risks of smoking. That's 1 20th of the danger. Now with that information, you would think that the FDA would see e-cigarettes as a better alternative to traditional cigarettes. And yet, the FDA has now finalized a plan to bring e-cigarettes under its authority. 
The FDA has announced that those changes include banning sales to minors. Nearly every e-cigarette product will need to go through FDA approval, and that includes every individual device and every flavor will require a separate application. That is incredibly expensive. Each application costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars to complete. That means for many of the nearly 200 or so companies that create e-cigarettes, they will not be able to innovate, and many of them will go out of business. So what you need to know is that under these new rules, e-cigarettes will go through the law's most rigorous and expensive approval process, under which companies must show the FDA with extensive scientific evidence, sometimes including clinical research, that approving the product is, quote, appropriate for the protection of public health. Okay, but when new research shows that fewer people are smoking traditional cigarettes, which we know causes cancer, which we know kills people, than they have in 20 years, and research also shows a direct result of e-cigarettes as to why fewer and fewer people are smoking, how is that not proof enough of being positive for public health? That's Reality Check. Let's talk about that tonight on Twitter. And that showed up, I think, Thursday night. And I went kind of berserk. And it's been shown, I mean, it's been seen thousands of times. So it's it's actually pretty impressive. Um, I kind of wish that story, even though it's not completely accurate, had gotten maybe a little more feedback on Twitter because most journalists tend to use that to gauge interest in a story. Yeah. And Ben Swan is a really good journalist. He really is. So I was pretty happy to see it, even though it had inaccuracies. There's way over more than 200 vendors. We know that. But it was the first thing I thought that was actually kind of fair. First report on TV that was pretty fair for us. So, yeah, I mean, um, because we've skipped a week. Yeah, I mean, we Mm -hmm. had the positive documentary on the BBC as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Horizon, Dr. Mosley, yeah. about e-cigarettes. Yeah. So yeah, the, the media is, yeah, that's, that's the first good positive report in the UK. Yeah. Um, oh. So yeah, the, the media is slowly catching on. Mm-hmm. Slowly. But, yeah. 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 I don't know. I, like I said, I was happy you know, he, he actually, this guy is actually a journalist, so. Uh, and those are in very short supply. So, you know, a win, I think. Hopefully one of many. Um, I, I don't know. See, uh, Sarah Dreamer, I'm not sure that I think, I don't think it's just an attack on the entrepreneurial system. I do. I think it's about them trying to find a way to force cigarettes under the master settlement agreement so that everybody gets their share of our money. Because there's the Foundation for Economic Education and not everybody likes it. Um, It's run by an anarchist and, you know, people who actually understand what economics actually is, not this made up crap of derivatives and stuff, but actually how money works um they wrote an article a couple years ago and i think it was called leaving leviathan and in leaving leviathan there were 
a bunch of tips and tricks for how to starve the beast. And one of them was to switch to vaping, right? Which is true when you look at the tremendous losses that uh, local and federal government is taking from not having smokers buy tobacco and pay that tax. It's huge. The loss for government is tremendous. And they want their money back. They want their money back. They want their scapegoats back. And they don't have them. There's, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But it's unfair. And the people who are living through it know it's unfair. Right? You know it's unfair, Barry. I know it's unfair. Everybody in this chat and everybody who listens to this knows what's happening to vapors is wrong and unfair. And... I don't know how easy that is to change, but uh, hopefully. Well, the 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 story keeps cropping up about mm -hmm. them wanting to bring in taxes right. in the EU on e-cigarettes, yeah. and the EU keeps keeps denying it. <laughs> of but course, the story they want keeps taxes. cropping up because loads of journalists are not dumb. Um, but, well, <laughs> You know, of course they want to tax it. They want their share. They want your blood money. They yeah. want to be able to spend like drunken sailors while you have nothing. That is well, what they do. It was, what, two and a half, three years ago? The only mm -hmm. the only politicians that were being honest about it were the Italians. Yeah. Where the guy in the Italian parliament was like, <laughs> these e-cigarettes are causing you know, tobacco revenues to go down. So we'll have to tax them to replace the money. Yep. That's the only that was the first politician that was honest about it. Oh, but that it's was... Italy. Nobody pays their taxes in Italy unless they're <laughs> insane anyway, so yeah. Um, <laughs> strange country. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. But um you know, a lot of countries are like that. People go for tax avoidance, they'll do anything, you know, to avoid paying taxes. And that's kinda smart, but I don't know. Oh. Yeah, Italy's the country where you have politicians will happily stand there and tell you they don't pay their taxes. <laughs> uh, Jeremy well, Clarkson, him mm -hmm. of Top Gear, Top Gear, he did a yeah. chat show uh, mm -hmm. a while ago, right. and one of the guests he had on it was the Italian ambassador. Uh -huh. And he was talking to the Italian ambassador about tax, mm -hmm. and the Italian ambassador's like, no, don't pay all my tax, no, no. <laughs> the money I'd pay in taxes, you know, I, I I give to a private school to educate my child. I pay for my health care, blah, 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 all the things that I'm supposed to be paying right. with taxes. Mm -hmm. said, but I pay it all myself, so I don't bother paying the tax. <laughs> and he said this on a, you know, on, in, in the chat show. You know, he's quite open about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what can you say? Um, it's... it's not the kind of brutal honesty you get here. Oh, I'm kind of excited. I bought a book called The Confessions of Congressman X. Okay, and it's <laughs> going to be here in a couple of days. So look for excerpts on the air. And it's written by a congressman who's telling the absolute truth. And it's written anonymously, of course, because he's an anonymous fucking coward. But it's written about what it's like to work in Congress and how they really feel about the American public. And I thought it would be just an interesting read, even though I'm pretty sure I know how they feel about us. You know. Yeah. Yes, we are cattle for 
to 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 be used for them to get money. That's that's. Well, actually, you know what? I have I have a friend who refers to people as sheep, yeah. and who refers to well, what do you call them? The ruling class, the elite, uh, refers to those people as shearers of sheep. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's that's an uncomfortable truth, <laughs> but we'll go with it. Um, so yeah, I said we would talk about stingrays. <laughs> Cause you just, I just can't. I apparently you can't learn enough about these things, right? How militarized cops use intrusive technology, stingray, and much more to intrude on our rights. Police nationwide are secretly exploring intrusive technologies with the feds' complicity. Can't you see the writing on the touchscreen? A techno utopia is upon us. We've gone from smartphones at the turn of the 21st century to smart fridges and smart cars. The revolutionary changes to our everyday life will no doubt keep barreling along. By 2018 or so, predicts Gartner, an information technology research and advisory committee, more than 3 million employees will work for robo-bosses. And soon enough, we, or at least the wealthiest among us, will be shopping in fully automated supermarkets and sleeping in robotic hotels. With all this techno-triumphism permeating our digitally saturated world, it's hardly surprising that law enforcement would look to technology, smart policing anyone, to help reestablish public trust after the 2014 death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the long list of other unnamed black men killed by cops in any town in USA. The idea that technology has a decisive role to play in improving policing was in fact a central plank of President Obama's Policing Reform Task Force. In its report released last May, the Task Force on 21st Century Policing emphasized the crucial role of technology in promoting better law enforcement, highlighting the use of body cameras in creating better openness. Implementing new technologies, it claimed, can give police departments an opportunity to fully engage and educate communities in a dialogue about their expectations for transparency, accountability, and privacy. Indeed, the report emphasized ways in which the police can engage communities, work collectively, and practice transparency in the use of these new technologies. Perhaps it won't shock you to learn, however, that the on-the-ground reality of 21st century policing looks nothing like what the task force was promoting. Police departments nationwide have been adopting powerful new technologies that are remarkably capable of intruding on people's privacy, and much of the time these are being deployed in secret without public notice or discussion, let alone permission. And while the task force's report says all the right things, a little digging reveals that the feds not only aren't putting the brakes on improper police use of technology, but are encouraging it even subsidizing the misuse of the very technology the task force believes will keep cops honest. To put it bluntly, a techno-utopia isn't remotely on the horizon, but its flip side may be. Getting stung and not even knowing it. Shamar Taylor was charged with robbing a police pizza delivery driver at gunpoint. The police got a warrant to search his home and arrested him after learning that the cell phone used to order the pizza was located in his house. How the police tracked down the location of that cell phone is what Taylor's attorney wanted to know. The Baltimore police detective called to the stand and the Taylor trial was evasive. There's equipment we could use that I'm not going to discuss, he said. When Judge Barry Williams ordered him to discuss it, he still refused, insisting that his department had signed a non-disclosure agreement with the FBI. 
You don't have a non-disclosure agreement with the court, replied the judge, threatening to hold the detective in contempt if he did not answer. And yet he refused again. In the end, rather than reveal the technology that had located Taylor's cell phone to the court, prosecutors decided to withdraw the evidence, jeopardizing their case. And don't imagine that this courtroom scene was unique or even out of the ordinary these days. In fact, it was just one sign of a striking nationwide attempt to keep an invasive, constitutionally questionable technology from being scrutinized, whether by courts or communities. The technology at issue is known as Stingray, a brand name for what's generically called a cell site simulator or IMSI catcher. By mimicking a cell phone tower, this device, developed for overseas battlefields, gets nearby cell phones to connect to it. It operates a bit like the children's game Marco Polo. Marco, the site simulator, shouts out, and every cell phone on that network or in the vicinity replies, Polo, and here's my ID. Thanks to this call and response process, the Stingray knows both what cell phones are in the area and where they are. In other words, it gathers information not only about a specific suspect, but any bystanders in the area as well. While the police may indeed use this technology to pinpoint a suspect's location, by casting such a wide net, there is also the potential for many kinds of constitutional abuses. For instance, sweeping up the identities of every person attending a demonstration or a political meeting. Some stingrays are capable of collecting not only cell phone ID numbers, but also numbers those phones have dialed and even phone conversations. In other words, the Stingray is a technology that potentially opens the door for law enforcement to sweep up information that, not so long ago, wouldn't have been available to them. All of this raises sorts of constitutional issues that might normally be settled through the courts and public debate, unless, of course, the technology is kept largely secret, which is exactly what's been happening. After the use of stingrays was first reported in 2011, the American Civil Liberties Union and other activist groups attempted to find out more about how the technology was being used, only to quickly run into heavy resistance from police departments nationwide. Served with open records requests under the Freedom of Information Act, like state laws, they almost uniformly resisted disclosing information about the devices and their uses. In doing so, they regularly cited non-disclosure agreements they had signed with the Harris Corporation, the maker of the Stingray, and with the FBI, prohibiting them from telling anyone, including other government outfits, about how or even that they used the devices. Sometimes, such evasiveness reaches near comical levels. For example, police in the city of Sunrise, Florida, served with an open records request, refused to confirm or deny that they had any Stingray records at all. Under cover of a controversial National Security Court ruling, the CIA and NSA sometimes resort to just this evasive tactic known as a glomer response. The Sunrise Police Department, however, is not the CIA and has no provision in Florida law that would allow it to take such a tack. When the ACLU pointed out that the department had already posted purchase records for Stingrays on its public website, it generously provided duplicate copies of those very documents and tried to charge the ACLU $20,000 for additional records. In a no less bizarre incident, the Sarasota Police Department was about to turn some Stingray records over to the ACLU in accordance with Florida's open records law when the U.S. Marshal Services swooped in and seized the records first, claiming ownership because it had deputized one local officer. And excessive efforts at secrecy are not unique to Florida, as those charged with enforcing the law commit themselves to stingray secrecy in a way that makes them lawbreakers. 
And it's not just the public that's being denied information about the devices and their uses. So are judges. Often the police get a judge's sign-off for surveillance without even bothering to mention that they will be using a stingray. In fact, others regularly avoid describing the technology to judges, claiming they simply can't violate those FBI non-disclosure agreements. More often than not, police use stingrays without bothering to get a warrant, instead seeking a court order on a more permissive legal standard. This is part of the charm of a new technology for authorities. Nothing is settled on how to use it. Appellate judges in Tallahassee, Florida, for instance, revealed that local police had used the tool more than 200 times without a warrant. In Sacramento, California, police admitted in court that they had, in more than 500 investigations, used stingrays without telling judges or prosecutors. That was, quote, an estimated guess, since they had no way of knowing the exact number because they had conveniently deleted records of stingray use after passing evidence discovered by the devices onto detectives. Much of this blanket secrecy spreading nationwide has indeed been orchestrated by the FBI, which has required local departments eager for the hottest new technology around to sign these non-disclosure agreements. One agreement unearthed in Oklahoma explicitly instructs the local police to find additional and independent investigative means to corroborate stingray evidence. In short, they're to cover up the use of stingrays by pretending their information was obtained some other way. The sort of dangerous constitutional runaround that is known euphemistically in the law enforcement circles as a parallel construction. Now that information about the widespread use of this new technology is coming out. Hang on, guys, I gotta take a drink. This is really warm. Is coming out. As in the Shamer tri Taylor trial in Baltimore, judges are beginning to rule that stingray use does indeed require a warrant. They're also insisting that police must accurately inform judges when they intend to use the stingray and disclose its privacy implications. Garbage in, garbage out. Because it's not just stingrays that's taking local police forces into new and unknown realms of constitutionally questionable but deeply seductive technology. Consider the hot new trend of predictive policing. Its products couldn't be high-techier. They go via a variety of names like Predpol, yep, short for predictive policing, and Hunch Lab, and there's nothing wrong with the hunches there. What they all promise, however, is the same thing. Supposedly bias-free policing built on the latest computer software and capable of leveraging big data in ways so that their salesmen will tell you can clearly determine where crime is most likely to occur next. Such technology holds out the promise of allowing law enforcement agencies to destroy their resources to areas to deploy their resources to areas that need the most without that nasty element of human prejudice getting involved. Predictive policing methods allow police to work more proactively with limited resources, reports Rand Corporation. But new software offers something just as potentially alluring as efficient policing, exactly what the President Task Force called for. According to market leader Predpol, its technology provides officers an opportunity to interact with residents, aiding in relationship building and strengthening community ties. How idyllic! In post-Ferguson America, that's a winning sales pitch for decision makers in blue. Not so surprisingly then, Predpol is now used by nearly 60 law enforcement agencies in the United States, and investment capital just keeps pouring into the company. In 2013, SF Weekly reported that 150 departments across the nation were already using predictive policing software, and those numbers can only have risen as the potential for cashing in on the craze 
has attracted tech-heavy hitters such as IBM, Microsoft, and Planter, the co-creation of PayPal founder Peter Thiel. Like the Stingray, the software for predictive policing is yet another spillover from the country's distant wars. Predpol was, according to SF Weekly, initially designed for tracking insurgents and forecasting casualties in Iraq and was financed by the Pentagon. One of the company's advisors, Harish Patel, used to work for InQtel, the CIA's venture capital firm. There's nothing more chilling than knowing that the CIA has a venture capital firm. Civil libertarians and civil rights activists, however, are less than impressed with what's being hailed as breakthrough policing technology. We tend to view it instead as a set of potential new ways for the police to continue a long history of profiling and pre-convicting poor minority youth. We also question whether the technology even performs as advertised. As we see it, the old saying, garbage in, garbage out, is likely best to describe how the new software will operate. Or as the RAND Corporation puts it, predictions are only as good as the underlying data used to make them. If, for instance, the software depends on historical crime data from a racially biased police force, then it's just going to set a flood of officers into the very same neighborhoods they've always over-policed. And if that happens, of course, more personnel will find more crime, and presto, you have the potential for a perfect feedback loop of prejudice arrests and high-tech success. To understand what that means, keep in mind that without a computer in sight, nearly four times as many blacks as white are arrested for marijuana possession even though usage among the two groups is about the same. If you leave aside issues of bias, there's still a fundamental question to answer about the new technology. Does the software actually work? Or, for that matter, reduce crime? Of course, the companies peddling such products insist that it does, but no independent analysis or reviews have yet verified its effectiveness until last year, or so it seemed at first. In December 2015, the Journal of the American Statistical Association published a study that brought joy to predictive crime-fighting industries. The study's research concluded that a predictive policing algorithm outperformed human analysis in indicating where crime would occur, which in turn led to real crime reductions after officers were dispatched to the flagged areas. Only one problem, five of the seven officer authors held predictive policing stock and two were co-founders of the company. On its website, Predpol identifies the research as a UCLA study, but only because Predpol co-founder Jeffrey Brentingham is an anthropology professor there. Predictive policing is a brand new area where question marks abound. Transparency should be vital in assessing this technology, but the companies generally won't allow communities targeted by it to examine the code behind it. We wanted a greater explanation for how this worked, and we were told it was all proprietary. Kim Harris, a spokeswoman for Bellingham Washington Racial Justice Coalition, told the Marshall Project after the city purchased the software last April. We haven't been comforted by the process. The Bellingham Police Department, which bought predictive software made by Bel Air Analytics with $21,200 Justice Department grant, didn't need to go to the city council for approval and didn't hold community meetings to discuss the development or explain how the software worked. Because the code is proprietary, the public is unable to independently verify that it doesn't have serious problems. Even if the data underlying most predictive policing software accurately anticipates where crime will occur, and that's a gigantic if, questions of fundamental fairness still arise. Innocent people living in or passing through identified high crime areas will have to deal with an increased police presence, 
which given recent history will mean more questioning or stopping and frisking and arrest for things like marijuana possession, which more affluent citizens are rarely bought in for. Moreover, the potential inequality of all this may only worsen as police departments bring online other new technologies like facial recognition. We're on the verge of big data policing, suggests law professor Andrew Ferguson, which will turn any unknown suspect into a known suspect, allowing an officer to search for information that might justify reasonable suspicion and lead to stop and frisk incidents and aggressive questioning. Just imagine having a decades-old criminal record and facing police armed with such powerful invasive technology. This could lead to the tyranny of the algorithm and a Faustian bargain in which the public increasingly forfeits its freedoms in certain areas out of fears for its safety. The Soviet Union had remarkably little street crime when they were at the worst of their totalitarian authoritarian controls, MIT sociologist Gary Marks observed. But my God, at what price? to record and serve those in blue. On a June night in 2013, Augustin Renozo discovered that his bicycle had been stolen from a CVS in the Los Angeles suburb of Gardenia. A store security guard called the police while Renoso's brother, Ricardo Diaz, Zafran Rio, and two friends tried to find the missing bike in the neighborhood. When the police arrived, they promptly ordered his two friends to put their hands up. Zofrino ran over, protesting that the police had the wrong men. At that point, they told him to raise his hands, too. He then lowered and raised his hands as police yelled at him. When he removed his baseball hat, lowered his hands, and began to raise them again, he was shot to death. The police insisted that Zofrino's actions were threatening, and so their shooting was justified. They had two videos of it taken by police car cameras, but refused to release them. Although police departments nationwide have been fighting any spirit of new openness, car and body cameras at least offered the promise of bringing new transparency to the actions of officers on the beat. That's why the ACLU and many civil rights groups, as well as President Obama, have spoken out in favor of the technology's potential to improve police-community relations. But only, of course, if the police are obliged to release videos in situations involving allegations of abuse. And many departments are fighting that fiercely. In Chicago, for instance, the police notoriously opposed the release of dash cam video in the shooting death of Laquan McDonald, citing the supposed imperative of an ongoing investigation. After more than a year of such resistance, a judge finally ordered the video made public. Only then did the scandal of seeing Officer James Van Dyke unnecessarily pump 16 bullets into the 17-year-old's body explode into the national consciousness. In the Zafrino case, the police settled the lawsuit with his family for $4.7 and yet continued to refuse to release the videos. It took two years before a judge finally ordered their release, allowing the public to see the shooting for itself. Despite this, in April 2015, the Los Angeles Board of Police Commissioners approved a body camera policy that failed to ensure future transparency, while protecting and serving the needs of Los Angeles Police Department. In doing so, it ignored the best practices advocated by the White House, the President's Task Force on Policing, and even the Police Executive Research Forum, one of the profession's most respected think tanks. On the possibility of releasing videos of alleged police misconduct and abuse, the new policy remained silent, but LAPD officials, including Chief Carlo Beck, didn't. They made it clear that such videos would generally be exempt from California's public records laws and wouldn't be released without a judge's orders, Essentially, the police reserved the right to release video when and how they saw fit. 
self-serving policy comes from the most lethal large police department in the country, whose officers shot and killed 21 people last year. Other departments around the country have made similar moves to ensure control over body camera videos. Texas and South Carolina, among other states, have even charged their open records laws to give the police power over when such footage should or shouldn't be released. In other words, when a heroic cop saves a drowning child, you'll see the video. When that same cop guns down a fleeting suspect, don't count on it. Curiously, given the stated positions of the president and his task force, the federal government seems to have no fundamental problem with that. In May 2015, for example, the Justice Department announced competitive grants for the purchase of police body cameras, officially trying to fund good body camera use policies. The LAPD applied, despite letters from groups like the ACLU pointing out just how poor its version of the body camera policy was. The Justice Department awarded it $1 million to purchase approximately 700 cameras. Accountability and transparency be damned. To receive public money for a tool theoretically meant for transparency and accountability and turn it into one of secrecy and impunity with the Fed's complicity and financial backing sends an unmistakable message on how new technology is likely to affect American policing practices. Think of it as a new door slowly opening into a potential policing dysopia. Hello, darkness powers old friend. Keep in mind that this article barely scratches the surface when it comes to the increasing number of ways in which the police's use of technology has infiltrated our everyday lives. In states and cities across America, some public bus and train systems have begun to add video surveillance. The surreptitious recording of conversations of passengers, a potential body blow to the concept of private conversation in public space, and whether or not the earliest versions of predictive policing actually work, the law enforcement community is already moving on to technology that will try to predict who will commit crimes in the future. Pre-crime, y'all. In Chicago, the police are using social networking analysis and prediction technology to drop heat lists of those who might perpetrate violent crimes someday and pay them visits now. You won't be shocked to learn which side of the tracks such future perpetrators live on. The rationale beside, behind this is, as always, public safety. Nor can anyone predict how law enforcement will avail itself of science fiction-like technology in the decade to come, much less decades from now, though cops on patrol may soon know a lot more about you and your past. They'll be able to cull such information from a multitude of databases at their fingertips, while you will know little or nothing about them. A striking power imbalance in a situation in which one person can deprive the other of liberty or even life itself. With little public debate, often in almost total secrecy, increasing numbers of police departments are wielding technology to empower themselves rather than the communities they protect and serve. At a time when trust in law enforcement is dangerously low, Police departments should be embracing technology's democratizing potential rather than its ability to give them almost superhuman powers at the expense of public trust. Unfortunately, power loves the dark. Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> you know, what I was thinking of was Minority Report. Yeah. You know, 
more and more now feels like the this dystopian fiction of the past. It's a very strange time to be living in. Well, yes. A very, 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 very strange time to be living. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. I don't know. I have... I have no idea how you change that. But I think... Someone said it really well when they said America had three powers, well, three ways to disrupt power. The soap box, the ballot box, and the bullet box. I'm afraid we're going to be left with one choice. I really don't like the idea of that. Um, yeah. But you, you see what happens when we actually have small-scale protests in this country. So, you know, it's... If I were a crazy person, I would tell you that I think it's almost set up this way to create an us against them mentality to divide us further from each other. Because if we're united, we can stop anything. The more you divide us, the more you make us see people as other, the more problems we're going to have. When you have divisions by race and religion and color and the amount of power someone has, the amount of money someone has, classism, um, you have a society where the bottom is 90% holding up 99.9% .9 of the top. They're not going to stand for that. Not for long. And you never know what's going to cause a powder keg to explode. You can't figure out what it is. You can't pick out what it is. The UK has had more uprisings than almost any country on the planet. And you, you never know what's going to cause them, do you, when you look at history? No. You can't tell what is going to be the thing that sets off the powder keg. But I do know the more and more power you take from people the less and less power they feel like they have, the more and more backed into a corner they feel, the more likely they are to strike back. And, you know, it's, it's not a happy time. Put it that way. But uh, things do seem to travel in a circle. Um, things yeah, that yeah, happen it's, in the past. it's about time for another peasant revolt. Yeah, yeah you can kind of see it. Hmm. I don't know. So I've got eight minutes to Alex. What's a really short one I've got in here? Um, oh, China? It's actually pretty long. Uh, <laughs> we'll get back to China later. Researchers could help cops tap into public surveillance cameras. Don't worry. It's for a good cause. The 30 million or so surveillance cameras peering into nearly every corner of American life might freak you out a bit, but you could always tell yourself that no one can access them all until now. Computer scientists have created a way of letting law enforcement tap any camera that isn't password protected so they can determine where to send help or how to respond to a crime. It's a way to help people take advantage of the information that's out there, said David Ebert, an electrical and computer engineer at Purdue University. 
The system, which is just a proof of concept, alarms privacy advocates who worry that such prudent surveillance could easily lead to government overreach or worse, unauthorized use. It relies upon... Okay, uh, uh, Alex is here, so it's just going to be a minute. The system, which is just proof of concept, alarms privacy advocates who worry that prudent surveillance could easily lead government overreach or worse, unauthorized use. It relies on two tools developed independently at Purdue. The Visual Analytics Law Enforcement Toolkit superimposes the rate and locations of crimes and locations of police surveillance cameras. CAM2 reveals the location and orientation of public network cameras, like the ones outside your apartment. You could do the same thing with a search engine like Shodan, but CAM2 makes the job far easier, which is the scary part. Aggregating all these individual feeds makes it potentially much more invasive. Purdue limits access to registered users and terms of service for CAM2 state. You agree not to use the platform to determine the identity of any specific individuals contained in any video or video stream. A reasonable step to ensure privacy, but difficult to enforce, though the team promises the system will have strict security if it ever goes online. I can certainly see the utility for first responders, says Dave Mann, an investigative researcher with the digital rights group Electronic Frontier Foundation, but it does open up the potential for some unseemly surveillance. Beyond the specter of universal government surveillance lies the risk of someone hacking the system. To Mass, it brings to mind the TV show Person of Interest and its brand of vigilantes who tap government cameras to predict and prevent crimes. This is not so far-fetched. Last year, the Electronic Frontier Foundation discovered that anyone could access more than 100 secure automatic license plate readers. I think it could become a very tempting target, said Galtman Haas, policy counsel at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Thinking about security issues is going to be a major concern. Granted, the system does not tap private feeds nor does it peer into private spaces like someone's home. But aggregating this data and mapping it against specific crimes or emergencies is troubling. Hans says there's no way of knowing when someone violates the terms of service and targets an individual. And the patchwork of regulations governing how agencies can use such technology is no guarantee against government overreach. Still, Hans is pragmatic and realizes the Purdue researchers have a noble goal. At a certain level, there's only so much you can do to prevent the march of technology, he says. It's not the best use of our time to rail against its existence. At a certain point, we need to figure out how to use it effectively, or at least with extensive oversight. Okay, so Alex is coming up in just a moment with the CASA update. So, Well, the, the cameras thing, yeah. I mean, the UK brought in laws to, I've said before, has brought in laws to deal with cameras. And who gets to use them, and mm-hmm. who gets to store the data? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of stuff on it. Um, yeah. But they brought that in. God, it must be close to fifteen years ago now. Yeah, but your co- your country was the first country to be blanketed. Yeah. In them, so they were the first to deal with it. Because the majority of the cameras over here, the ones in public, are run by a private company. Right. Um, NCP, who also okay. run car parks, funnily enough, because <laughs> a lot of the cameras are in, are in car, car, parks. Car, car parks. So, but yeah, the the police can't just use 
the cameras whenever they like. They've got to have warrants and all sorts of things. But well, if it's a live chase, they can call up one of the control centres and go and ask one of the operators to track somebody. <laughs> so, well, but yeah, it's, it's it's complicated, but at least we've got laws in place well, that govern the whole country. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a start, I guess. Yeah, and you. I and, mean, and they're right. You can never keep the hackers out. So. No, you can't. All I can say is is the one thing I've always been saying. You know, technology makes us naked. It means we can't hide. But it means the people doing evil shit are having a hell of a hard time hiding too. Yeah. Because if it, the information's out there, someone will find it. And everyone well, will know. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's not really a camera story, but an interesting one that came up in the UK today. Uh, uh, listeners might not know a lot about Hillsborough and the recent court case involving it, but okay. 96 football supporters died in a football stadium. Damn. It took the families 27 years to get a ruling on unlawful death. Huh. As in yeah, somebody needs to be blamed for these people dying. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the newspapers, at the time of the incident, was trying to blame the supporters for these deaths. Okay. Um, so today, in a pub in Worcester, mm -hmm. a guy wore a T-shirt that was uh, rather inflammatory, basically saying, you know, you know, these people deserve to die kind of oh, thing. God. Um, within two hours he was arrested <laughs> I mean there's photos it, of it all over Facebook but I mean uh, quickly that, he was identified because of that and you know, yeah, police got him that's the danger isn't it Yeah, you have no freedom of expression when everything is caught on camera everything is digitized and everything can be pulled apart by someone well, yeah, what what was said on his T-shirt was way beyond just free speech. It was definitely, um, you know, beyond but, the pale. Yeah, but here's the thing. I, I believe. God, this is terrible. I believe a neo-Nazi has the right to stand up and yell and scream and shout horrible, terrible, inflammatory things, and I might not like it. I can just walk away from it. I don't have to look at it. I don't have to hear it. I don't have to see it. And these are people I'm, I'm not a fan of. These are people I despise. But if their freedom of speech is curtailed, what's to stop mine from being curtailed? You know, they have the same right to freedom of speech as anyone else. So it, it, it's a slippery slope. It is. Yeah. I mean, the, the law over here has been... It, it took them ages to bring it in, the right. hate speech laws. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the police don't use it all the time. They only use it in... Right. Know, in, but, in severe cases, shall we say. Otherwise, yeah, they could basically arrest anyone they liked any time they liked for anything <laughs> you say. But they're not well, allowed to do that. Yeah, I know. they justify the, it to a judge. So, right, yeah. they're... they're 
Yeah, but you have judges there that aren't appointed by Cletus, the town barber. We yeah. don't have that here. Sorry, I'm, um, I'm trying to scroll back through Facebook to yeah, to see the t-shirt in question. Unless Facebook's already started removing all the well, <laughs> references to it. Well, Facebook it lost, Facebook, Google, and another AI company lost a really big court case today. Ah, right, here we go. Yes, this is what the guy's t-shirt said. Hillsborough, God's way of helping rent-a-kill. That's kind of... Yeah, and he cool. was wearing it in in a busy that's family cold. bar. I'm, I'm not saying that's yeah. not cold. It's it's cold. But yeah. People have... Oh, I mean, he... When I say he got arrested, he'll appear in court and he'll probably get a small fine. He's not going to jail or anything like that. But, yeah, it's you know, just kind of a flag <laughs> to him to say... Yeah, don't be an asshole in a public place. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're shouting, screaming, and being aggressive, he'd get arrested. Yeah. This is a similar sort of thing. That's how they look at it over here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, because literally, yeah, within minutes of him yeah. turning up at the pub, there's pictures all over Facebook, and yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Um. I agree, and we can talk about this in a little bit um, yep. in in a minute or two but for now now it's time for Alex okay I don't need to find it here we go government could take away all our rights that's that's the evil deal good evening Alex good evening Ooh, that's loud um Is Alex it? Yeah, it's very loud. You don't have headphones on, do you? I do. Okay. Um, how's, how's that? That's better. Um, good is it, evening. Is it, is it better now? Yeah, okay, I think cool. so. Right, uh, it's good. probably what happens is whenever Skype updates, it automatically changes your sound settings. So Skype had an update like two days ago, and they forced us all to take it. So. All right. Yeah. Fun, fun. <laughs> Good evening, Alex, and uh, welcome to the CASA update for the week of 5-30-2016. Sorry we missed last week, but, uh, you know, I worked for a slave driver that was uh, intent on trying to kill me last week, so <laughs> I didn't get to do a show. Brutal. What's, uh, what's <laughs> been going on? <laughs> what's new and exciting? Oh, man. Um, first of all, is, is the level... Back to normal. Are we at a decent spot it's, now? It's good. Uh, okay. okay. Cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, last week I was in uh, Las Vegas at VPX. Um, okay. I got I got to talk a little bit about it on uh, Kevin's show on Sunday. Uh -huh. uh, last Sunday. <laughs> I've been I've been home for a solid week and like I've left the apartment once to go grocery shopping. <laughs> So it's like so, vacation, kind of? That's, no, I've been working, with the exception of yesterday and Saturday. I even worked a little bit Saturday. Um, okay. I, I have been working from my desk um, vigilantly. Well. <coughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. But yeah, that's just, that's kind of the impact that Las Vegas has on me. Um, okay. 
uh, so three days at a convention in Las Vegas will make me want to just draw the blinds and stay inside for a week. Uh, uh, so not that's necessarily, what, not necessarily a bad thing. No, uh, it's been good. Uh, and I'm hitting the road again tomorrow. Uh, I am flying to Oklahoma City and then uh, we'll be catching a ride to Norman, Oklahoma to meet with Representative Tom Cole. Oh, um, I remember you uh, talked about that before, yeah. Yep, the, cool. the author, uh, sponsor of um, HR 2058 and co, I guess he's a co-sponsor or co-author of uh, the Cole Old Bishop Amendment. Um, so that will be a meeting. Uh, Sean Gore uh, is is sort of facilitating that, I believe. Uh, myself, I believe, Capo Rourke from Safada is going, um, and I think I think Greg might still be touring Mississippi, but uh, he was invited to come as well. Nice. Uh, so uh, yeah, we're going to have a nice sit down with with Representative Cole and uh, and chat about some things. I don't I don't know anything else other than that, but I'm sure I will have something to report uh, soon. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, that being a very interesting topic of discussion uh, on the interwebs, uh, I, f I sincerely hope that we have cleared this up by now. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, just to reiterate, in case people have not gotten the, the memo, um, uh, first of all, we are kind of on our on our own schedule we had updated our call to action uh, for HR 2050 to include uh, a message that is supportive of the Cole Bishop amendment um, so that and that's sort of just it's sort of on top of what we had already had going for um, HR 2058 so if you have not participated in that um, that you're still able to participate uh, in that uh, and uh, we will be releasing a uh, call to action specific to Cole Bishop probably I assume we're looking at the first half of June okay. and uh, hopefully the timing works out and it is coordinated with uh, sort of on the ground face-to-face -face lobbying efforts in DC mm -hmm. Um, those are really the most effective. You have people going in and talking about an issue, and then that lawmaker is also receiving lots of emails from constituents about that issue. It has a lot more impact that way, and so uh, we are consciously trying to coordinate something like that. Cool. <clears throat> um, so, yes, and uh, even since the last time I talked about uh, HR 2050, I believe we picked up two more co-sponsors last week. Um, yep. That brings the total to five or six for May. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, and this was kind of my my hope and my feeling was that once the deeming regulations came out and people started to see just how horrible they were, uh, that people would be you know beaten on the doors of their lawmakers saying, "Hey, you got to change this, man," sure. and uh, we would start seeing some more support. Um, yeah. So, uh, that is that. Uh, the other thing, I, it's a little, it's, it's a little too late to bring it up, but it's still important, um, okay. today, despite, by the way, uh, I hope everyone is having a somber and reflective Memorial Day. Um, and, uh, I, I can't, I, it's, it's one of the, I can't wish people a happy Memorial Day. That, that doesn't seem appropriate. So, um, I hope 
that we've all taken some time to look back and express your individual appreciation for those who have given their lives in service to our country. And um, what better way to uh, <clears throat> honor their sacrifice than to participate in the legislative process in our country that is a, a cornerstone of our democracy. Um, if you are in the state of Illinois, uh, apparently you didn't have a choice but to participate in your legislative process today. Um, they were in session, and um, the uh, Tobacco 21 bill, SB 3011, um, was in... I, I, <clears throat> kind of unexpectedly shifted to a different committee. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in like the Consumer Protection Committee or something. Uh, it got moved to a Public Health Committee and was uh, heard today. That was around 4 o'clock Eastern Time. Um, so I don't know, I don't have any information about the outcome of that. Um, but uh, since they shifted it to a new committee, our previous alert where we were asking people to send uh, send in witness slips to express opposition to the bill. Mm -hmm. It had to be done again. Um, and I got, I saw this about, I don't know, less than an hour before the hearing was supposed to start. So um, it sounds like we got a few people that were able to participate in time. Um, I just sent out an email blast about it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't quite it's it's I haven't dug into the history of like when this announcement was made, but uh, that's 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 particularly shifty, um, and uh, especially on what you know most people who aren't who don't work in customer service or sales um, regard as a holiday. Um, <clears throat> I, I have typically always had some sort of customer service related job, either in food service or the the rental industry, so I. Um, have never really had. I, I rarely get these kind of Monday holidays off, right. um, unless July Fourth or Christmas falls on it. So, um, right. anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, Illinois. Uh, waiting to see the outcome of that committee hearing. Um, yeah. New York State, uh, and this goes to a larger. Uh, subject that we'll be kind of rehashing um, as we go forward. Um, so now that the FDA deeming regulations are out, we can reasonably expect to see states uh, feeling somewhat emboldened to uh, reintroduce or introduce legislation that uh, updates their code to include vapor products in their definition of tobacco. Um, also do other silly things like prohibit sales of flavors. Um, tobacco 21 is just tobacco 21 no matter what. That's going to be an issue for, for many years to come. Um, so yeah, any of the stuff that we have been talking about, taxes, indoor use bans, flavor bans, restrictions on retailers and so on, um, yeah. All of that is is still on the table. Um, a lot of these things are issues that the deeming regulations do not address. Yeah. Uh, and of course, when you're going to gut the entire industry, 
you don't really need to address these issues specifically. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, there was a press conference in Albany last week, and uh, the usual suspects, uh, Linda Blumen or Linda Rosenthal, 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 yeah. and Kemp Hannon, and uh, the ACS, ALA, AHA. And I think someone from the Roswell Park Cancer Center, which is odd because that I that is very I, weird. I had, yeah, I it was uh, they had been actually speaking favorably yes. of of vapor products, and I watched that BBC Horizon documentary this afternoon, right? And uh, they interview uh, a, a, a researcher scientist from Roswell Park. Mm -hmm. uh, who is is monitor, you know studying the secondhand exposure uh, mm -hmm. effects of, of vapor products and uh, you know his own studies seem to suggest that there really was no no risk right um, so yeah <laughs> odd to see their name on that list of people at the press conference um, yeah. I got a I got a quote in. Uh, to kind of a local uh, public radio piece, um, basically repeating some of the recommendations from Public Health England and the Royal College of Physicians. Um, but uh, when I was in Albany with the the, the folks from Safada, uh, we had asked several lawmakers, you know, you know. You know, here's a couple of bills that we're concerned about, and what do you think about this? And all of them sort of said, "Yeah, you know, something like this might get through. Something like an indoor use ban might get through the House, but the Senate isn't going to do anything with it. This is it's just not going to move." Um, so I have actually kind of intentionally held off on putting out a call to action for this issue um, because number one, uh, I, I don't really want these lawmakers thinking about it. Um, I would prefer this kind of lame press conference to sort of fade into memory and um, uh, I, I would, yeah, rather just not bring it up if we don't have to. Um, and I, I haven't heard anything back from New York's uh, Safada people uh, in regards to, oh yeah, suddenly this is an issue and we need to get on it. So um, if anybody's curious as to why we haven't put anything out about it, that's why the the okay. information that I have so far is that uh, this might move in one house and we you know might activate on that, uh, but it's not doesn't have a whole lot of um, doesn't have a lot of juice to get through the Senate. Yeah. Speaking of New York, and I haven't dug into this a whole lot, um, but to sort of dig even deeper into this whole let's pay attention to our states thing. Um, I got I've gotten a couple of emails and a couple of phone calls in the past uh, three or four days from folks on Long Island. Um, apparently, uh, ridiculous vapor regulations are spreading like a small brush fire in Long Island. Um, so uh, I have Islip Township and is it Brookhaven? I think it's. I think I, my handwriting is atrocious. I think that's supposed to be Brookhaven <laughs> Township. Um, both have had uh, hearings and/or ordinances passed in the past month, past couple weeks actually. Um, and so, I just wanted to put it out there: uh, if you live on Long Island, please check in with your city council and see what's going on. Right. Uh, 
I suspect this would be a lot like Massachusetts where it kind of, you know, your neighboring municipality gets it in their head that this is a good idea, so why the hell not? Um, but uh, I, I will be devoting some time looking into this and seeing if there's anything we can do about it. Um, but again, you know, someone pointed this out to me again over the, while we were in Las Vegas um, that you know local your your city council is where a lot of things get started. Sure. If enough sure. municipalities get and and it's it's somewhat easy to get things through a city council. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a whole lot of media attention on things, uh, even if it is a controversial uh, topic. I guess the media kind of looks at it and says, you know, oh well, that's just a small population of people, not a big deal. Um, right. Or you know, maybe you'll hear about it in the media, but it doesn't really get a whole lot of traction. I mean, unless they're actually like. You know, I mean, unless your city government is actually murdering people, um, <laughs> you know, like it's probably not going to make it to the national news. Right. Um, but uh, things like, you know, what most of the country might regard as, and most of the country does sort of feel that prohibiting vaping indoors is a good idea. Um, uh, I forget the, the recent polls, but uh, I think it is actually kind of not in our favor. Um, and considering that we are not a majority, um, that also kind of helps things. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, things like restrictions on vapor products is not typically too controversial, and, and getting some, a movement like that going at the local level is pretty easy for them to do. So, um, everyone should be advised to, to pay attention to your your local local policymakers. Um, on deck. For tomorrow, I have uh, Pennsylvania is looking at its 40% wholesale tax again. Um, the state assembly is going back into session on June 6th. That's next Monday. And uh, the discussion about the budget will be on everyone's plate. And uh, the 40% wholesale tax is absolutely on the table again. So uh, we will. I will be releasing a call to action tomorrow for that. Okay. People in Pennsylvania make phone calls and emails, um, sure. and uh, we can we can defeat this again. I am hopeful, mm -hmm. not not entirely certain, but hopeful. Um, uh, how many times so far have they bought that up this year? Well, as far as I understand it. Um, I, I could, could be getting this wrong. They never really quite finished their budget from last year. So Pennsylvania has been operating in 2016 without a, a real budget. Right. They, they've got whatever they needed to pass to kind of get by. Uh -huh. uh, but it, as far as I remember it, uh, it was never really finalized. So we had this discussion last year the vapor tax and what was supposed to be a, 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 a new tax on smokeless was, was all that stuff was taken out um, and they still had some gaps to fill um, and uh, and then it was brought back up again in one last push to finalize the budget taken out um, and so I, I, I'm not really sure what the 2016 budget ended up looking like um, but you know it's like you know you, you can't just 
sort of you, you don't just hide your checkbook in a drawer and it magically balances itself. So it, it's kind of the same thing. Like anything that was unresolved from 2016 is going to be unresolved for 2017. So here we are again. And I, I suspect that until, you know, lawmakers actually get it through their head that enacting a vapor tax is actually going to cost them money, um, <laughs> That, that that it's just they're going to keep looking at this as as an option. Well, um, I mean, what was what was the place that passed it where they thought they were going to get one point two million dollars and they got something ridiculous like fifteen thousand um, dollars taxes? Yeah, that was a county in Maryland, and I yeah. don't know why it's escaping me right now. Yeah. It's like outside of it's like north and west of Baltimore. Yeah. Um, I, I, I apologize, but yeah, they they have taken in. The, well, the last one we looked at, I think Greg had looked at the numbers, and it was for the first quarter they had taken in like one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, <laughs> which just definitely does not put them on track to reaching no. their their estimate. I mean, it's it's really sad because I'm assuming they estimate those numbers like they estimate drug deal money. You know, and this this can't it, it isn't even taxed that way. I don't even know how you could. And I think there's confusion about how to make that money back. And it's almost a shame that we can't. Every time someone wants to enact it, we can't show them. What other municipalities have made that it's actually cost them money to try and enforce this, because I don't know. I, I just think it'd be interesting. And there's there's so many variations. I mean, you have, for example, the the wholesale tax on nicotine in in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. That's that's very specific. Um, and then you have the five cent per milliliter tax in North Carolina, which has not been. Uh, I think that start did that start last summer, or was that uh, going? I think that went into effect last summer. Right. Um, and. Uh, so, yeah, I guess you've got a full year of revenue from that. Um, and then you have the more uh, uh, steeper proposals that are out there. Um, well, you have, I think, what, uh, um, oh, what is Kansas? Like a 20% wholesale tax? Yeah. Um, which has been kind of deferred until uh, the beginning of next year. Um, Juneau, Alaska passed a 40% wholesale tax. Ooh. And then you have all these other, you know, cities. Chicago is obviously the, like the worst offender here with 75 cents per milliliter. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so again, that's, it's, it's relatively new, mm -hmm. but it, it sort of initially has had such an impact, um, that, that, yeah, that would be, you know, there will be official data there somewhere. Right. Um, I, I don't know who the person is to put that together. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, 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 it's a very important, uh, bit of information to reference. Yeah. Not that they are going to care. I mean, I, I think, you know, people seem to think that, <clears throat> I, I think I remember reading an article about this. It might've been something that you sent to me a over a year ago. Um, yeah. When lawmakers see dollar signs in a proposal, 
all that other feedback about, you know, where this policy has failed in other mm-hmm. communities, it, all that sort of seems to be faded and it doesn't really have an impact. They, all they see is that potential for revenue. Right. Um, and and I, I, there's also, I think, a, a feeling of like, well, that's, that's not going to happen in my community where, you know, <laughs> we're real good about that kind of thing. So we'll, we'll absolutely collect every cent. No one, sure. no one will be disloyal to this town and go shop elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> support the local music scene man come up front and dance <laughs> yeah no i i just i think the data would be interesting on that maybe i'll maybe that's something i'll i'll look at for fun you know because i like money <laughs> <laughs> i do <laughs> you know it's something i find interesting and i would i would love to see the results so that's something i'm gonna look at maybe i can put something together yeah. Which the data would be interesting, if nothing else. Yeah, it would make for a great uh, talking point or a chart to put in with uh, the other tax talking points that we have available in our in our Google Drive. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> fun, fun. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, I actually earlier in this show actually played the Ben Swan video. Yeah, I sent you that link thinking it was something new, but uh, it's been around for a few days now. Um, well, he's doing he's doing actually starting in June. He he has like his own separate from what he does for broadcast television. He has his own like sort of YouTube network that he does videos for, and he's going to do a four part series on the FDA. So I'm kind of hoping. Mm. That if response was really good, he'll cover that and that, and that would be really interesting too. Yeah, um, I, I uh, appreciate. It. I didn't know that he was also uh, in, affiliated with uh, like a local uh, yeah. it CBS yeah. station. Yeah. Um, so that was that was that was good to see. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are, and it's not just the usual suspects, seem to be picking up on just how horrible the FDA regulations are. Yeah, um, well, you know, they kind of are. They're, 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 they're so egregiously terrible that, you know, anybody can see it, it seems like. It's not just us, you know what I mean? Usually it's just us preaching to the choir. But I see people sharing that who don't vape, don't have anything to do with vaping, don't like smoking or anything like that, but they're actually mad at the government for even proposing it. So that's kind of hopeful, I think. Yeah, it, it just, it, it, it will be such a tremendous waste of, of resources and um, talent, actually, yeah. you know, to implement these regulations. It, it just... It goes against everything that that we, as a country, I think have, at least in the past, been known for. You know, the the, the scrappy backyard innovators um, <laughs> yeah. that that used. You know, we used to have a lot more of them that solved a lot more problems, and um, and now it's just that all of that has been kind of pushed aside in favor of big corporate profits. Or I mean, I guess I guess the last bastion of, of backyard innovators is is Silicon Valley, um, 
and even that is kind of out of reach for most people. So yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so it's right now. It's it's really interesting. It's interesting to see how many people are are just finding out about the FDA stuff. I got to tell two vapors at work, and they looked like they were going to fall over. So we've got two Nukasa members. <laughs> yeah. So, just maybe a little storytelling commentary about VPX. Mm -hmm. um, VPX, this was the second uh, vape expo post deeming. Um, I was in Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Central Pennsylvania Vape Expo, which is a smaller event, um, noticeably smaller event, um, but uh, still some, some, you know, lots of people were there. Um, and, uh, and then went to VPX last weekend, uh, which was huge. I mean, there was tons of, of manufacturers and, and, and retailers there. Um, and it's Las Vegas. I mean, just sure. tons of people. Uh -huh. Um, and yeah, it was kind of, I, I think I actually spoke to one person I spent my time kind of floating around to people that I knew and um, was able to get, was able to kind of expand on, one of our members had actually posted this little kind of mini mini flyer right. um, PDF thing in, in our, our Facebook group mm -hmm. and uh, I sort of took that and, and expanded on it a little bit, made them smaller. Uh, mm -hmm. They can fit. I mean, you can you can sort of fold this in half and slip it into a box with an eighteen six fifty battery, um, right. and so it fits pretty well in just about any box that that a, that a mod would come in, uh -huh. um, or a, you know, a box with 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 e liquid. Um, so I uh, worked on that uh, to you know get a little, little stacks handed out to several people that were at the event so that they could hand them out with all the orders going out. Um, either they could take it home or they could send it out with people that were coming by their booth. Um, so anyway, I, as I was walking away, I uh, stopped by, I guess it was one of these kids who kind of, you know, stepped up and was like, hey, how are you doing today? You know, you want to try the, our, our e-liquid? And they were, they were next to a booth that was clearly infringing on some IP. Um, and uh, I, I don't remember the name of their company, uh, right. either of their companies. Um, but, uh, I kind of was like, you know, no, not really, but here's a, here's a flyer for, you know, August 8th.org. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Oh, well, what's this? And I was like, well, do you know what August 8th is? It's like, no. It's like, are you familiar with the FDA deeming regulations? And he kind of got that, you know, what kind of look <laughs> on his face. <laughs> it's just like, Oh man, like this is, this is, it's as bad as we thought. I mean. Yeah. You know, you got to think that there are, I, I have a list of over 8,000 retail locations throughout the country. Um, and that's, that's not even all of them. I'm sure there's well over 10,000 retail locations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and all of that is being stocked by, you know, well over a thousand manufacturers. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I would unfortunately estimate that well over well over half the industry does not understand what just happened <laughs> um, and a lot of these people are new so you kind yeah. of have an excuse I get it but right. um, it, it's 
it does seem to me a bit shocking that anybody would come into this space uh, without doing some basic research. Yeah. Seeing as it is nicotine, it is a controversial product. Sure. Um, and uh, even even people who are just picking up this product for the first time, you know, it should be, uh, you know, somewhat aware of the potential controversy here. It's not potential anymore. It's yeah. It is controversial. So, it's kind yeah. of surprising to me the manufacturers aren't telling the the retail. Okay, well, no, it's not. No, it's not. That's bad for their business model. Yeah, and 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 here's the thing, and I I, I don't quite know how to preface this in the right legal way. First of all, I'm not offering legal advice. I'm not I'm not a lawyer. Uh, even if I was a lawyer, I'm not your lawyer. So. <laughs> Um, just take it with a grain of salt, but be aware. Um, I know that we have several people who are retailers who listen to this and, and follow us on the various outlets. Um, one of the things that was brought up at one of the kind of speaking portions of the VPX show was, um, I'll just kind of quote, uh, you know, uh, my I, I buy product from a partic particular manufacturer and they say that they are ready for the <laughs> FDA deeming regulations. Um, now, I'm not going to say that that's impossible, um, but it is <laughs> pretty much impossible. Um, yeah. I, I have spoken to at least one person who has been... Uh, diligently um, going through the process of, of understanding at the very least what right. they need to be doing to be FDA compliant mm -hmm. um, and uh, they have been working on this issue since before the deeming regulations came out. Yeah. That's probably as far as I know the only person that might have a, a heads up or a head start uh, in this process. Um, there is nobody at this time who can confidently say they are prepared to be compliant with the FDA deeming regulations. I don't, just, I, I don't think anybody can because the FDA can't even adequately from page to page tell you exactly what they want. Page 58 contradicts page 182. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you ask them they don't even have like a straight answer. They just quote the regs. It's not really helping. Yeah, that was actually something. Shell Hamill pointed this out at the um, VPX thing. It was a Q&A with her and Greg Conley. Mm -hmm. And she was recounting her experience in the past couple weeks with calling the FDA. And, um, you know, you call one person, they give you one answer. Uh, you call another, you call back and you get a different answer or they call you back and you get a different answer. So even even FDA staff are having a hard time interpreting this. Oh, and, sure. and yeah, like you said, if you watch the webinars, um, <laughs> which somebody somebody has affectionately named uh, the, the guy, the general that is there or whatever his, I don't know what his rank is, but um, he's got some, he's got some decorations on his, on his mm -hmm. uniform. Um, he, uh, 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 Captain Vaporu, 
because I, I mean, seriously, like the, the only thing that this, that that set needs is like some, you know, cut out like set, you know, trees and maybe a clubhouse. And, you know, I keep waiting for like a stuffed mascot to come out. Oh, um, God. It, it is, <laughs> they are bad. They're really, the webinars are terrible. Yeah, it's it's difficult to watch, but I, I do appreciate the fact that um, they are taking uh, the practical advice of you have to kind of produce things that are on like a fifth grade level, I think, yeah. to reach a maximum number of people. Um, and I will say, given some of the people that I have met in the industry, that's the level that they need to be addressed at. Um, and it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And I, and I, I don't mean that in an insulting way. No, 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 I no. It's a very I, practical observation. Yeah, no, and it's not insulting, but it's also deeming regulations are not scintillating rating. They're not even scintillating discussion, discussion. They're, they're boring. Yeah. When John Oliver talked about net neutrality, he said that the government had finally found the way to pass something evil, and it was by sticking it inside of something boring, which is <laughs> kind of what they've done with both these webinars and, and with deeming. It's evil, and it's boring, and it's so boring that that almost wins out over you trying to understand it. But even they don't understand it. So how do you enforce what you cannot understand? I think what they don't understand is the market. And yeah, they want to take the complicated and make it really simple. That's so anything yeah, but simple. And, and that's the real kind of that's the real purpose of these deeming regulations is to uh, reduce it down to a more manageable size. Um, it can be. No, and and they they have neglected to acknowledge, um, in any real way, that taking away the diverse paper industry basically, you know, if you if you confine us to just a few closed systems, whether they're tanks or not, um, the rest of the products are going to be on a black market. Yes, they are. Um, and they, 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 there is an awful lot of chest puffing and, oh, well, we'll enforce the rules, blah, blah. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just, this, this industry was born in somebody's kitchen, in somebody's garage, in somebody's basement. There is absolutely nothing stopping it from going back to that. Um, you and, know, and, and people aren't stupid. They remember mail order with, using money order and I could see conceivably things going back that way you know if you push something hard enough people will find a way around it and and they're pushing just silly stuff I I was in I was in treatment I was in substance abuse I was in addiction treatment inpatient okay. recovery mm -hmm. uh, with a guy who was who lived in New York City Mm -hmm. And he could have heroin delivered to his apartment. Oh. So yeah. if I can get heroin delivered to my apartment, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I can find some cotton candy, high nicotine <laughs> liquid, and a specialty box mod. You, you, don't even, um, you don't even need to go to the dark web to find this stuff. I mean, and here's, here's the thing. 
if you search Etsy, you know, the handmade craft market, mm -hmm. you search it with the right terms, you, you could walk out of Etsy with anything. Anything. <laughs> right, it's not Craigslist, but you have to have the right search terms, and it's really not hard to find anything there. And the FDA is completely unprepared for what they're going to deal with. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Yeah, and they'll be asking for um, more money in an appropriations bill in 2019 <laughs> or 2018 in order to um, up their enforcement that will ultimately fail and just end up costing people a lot of money and it's lives. Funny. It's funny how people forget the grand experiment. You know what the grand experiment was? Prohibition. That okay. was our nation's grand experiment. People forget the things that happened during Prohibition and how unstoppable it was. And the only way the government really could attempt to stop the black market in alcohol was getting ethyl alcohol manufacturers to poison their product. Mm, right. So I'm not saying the government would do that. I'm just saying th certain things are unstoppable. Yeah. This is one of those things. I think I, I think I talked about this. Did I talk, tell you about my Yeah, I talked about the New Jersey flavor ban. Yeah. Yeah. I got a proper eye roll from, <laughs> a, from a New Jersey senator when I mentioned uh, flavored alcohol products. But it's the truth. Yeah. 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 Well, so here we are on the precipice of another massive national public health disaster. Um, <laughs> and I guess I should probably provide a little bit of more update um, in terms of what we're doing. Uh, I have gotten a few emails asking um, about where is the best place to send our money and you know what kind of material benchmarks does the coalition have or what you know right what are these organizations doing? Um, <laughs> It is, uh, I need to kind of echo or restate some things that I said in, in Las Vegas, which is um, at this stage, we are likely not going to see a whole lot of um, achieving certain benchmarks. Um, we are still in the, you know, it, the, the regulations have been out for less than a month. Um, and uh, there are strategies that are, are forming, have been forming. There are things that are in play, like HR twenty fifty eight and the Cole Bishop Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, so you know things have been in motion since before the deeming regulations. Yeah. Things are going to be started in motion in the in the coming months. Mm -hmm. um, we will likely see another surge of interest uh, on August eighth, sure. um, and uh, you know all of those things contribute to more people being aware and more people taking action. Mm -hmm. Um, CASA has, uh, we put out an announcement last week, um, that we are getting behind the, um, right to be smoke free coalition lawsuit, um, which is, uh, that this is, I, I think I'm, I'm describing this correctly. This will be different. This, this is not the Indiana lawsuit that right to okay. be smoke free originally, uh, formed behind. This mm -hmm. will be a different, um, lawsuits uh, tailored to uh, the deeming regulations. 
Um, so uh, more details about that will be will be coming up. Um, mm -hmm. But that is a bit of a financial that's some financial support on our on our part right. um, going towards that. Um, and then one of the other important things to remember is that you know a legislative solution is this year. Um, you know, I, I think that we can all be somewhat hopeful about Cole Bishop, you know, right. going the distance, uh -huh. um, but it's not wise to put out all of our eggs in that basket. Um, and this effort to change the predicate date, mm -hmm. it does not actually have to happen this year. It would be great if it did. And, sure. and there's no reason that we should abandon any effort to make that happen this year. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're not, um, but uh, you know, it, it, a, a, a more meaningful legislative solution to this is likely to uh, either start or happen in 2017, possibly going into 2018. Right. Um, there's a lot that can be done. There's a lot that needs to be done before mm -hmm. FDA starts the the really big enforcement, which is um, sending letters to people demanding that they take their products off the market, which right. that happens in 2018. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I hate to say this because, you know, sending money to, to organizations is obviously sending money. And, um, right. and, and I feel like, you know, to be, in order to be respectful, I should have a little bit more to show for it than just, Hey, trust us, man. Um, but at this point, um, you know, it, it really is a matter of, uh, you know, we, CASA has a track record of working very hard uh, to, to get things, to get information and resources and, and opportunities for engagement out to the community. Um, and so, uh, you know, take that as, as evidence of, of how dedicated we are to getting, uh, getting this done. And, right. uh, you know, I'm not openly soliciting donations, uh, but if you are uh, considering a donation, please, by all means, send us your money. We're going to put it to work. We're going to put it to work. We are. Um, um, what I was going to say. Go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, and, and if it's something that, that we are not capable of, but we are in a position to support financially, then that's where we will direct money. Case in point, um, this lawsuit from right to be smoke free. Sure. So what I was going to say is it, it took the FDA how many years to write this? You know, and what we had at first wasn't half as bad as this. And even knowing that we started formulating things back then, look how long it took them to come up with this document. If you think this kind of thing can be fought and won in a month, you don't understand the wheels of government. They turn slow. Our, we're just trying to turn a little quicker than they are. Yeah, there's, there's no silver bullet. There's no one person, no one organization, no one effort that's going to solve this. Um, and, um, you know, I, the, the worst case, well, a potential best case in my mind is it would be that we go all the way to August 8th, 2018, and 
FDA starts the enforcement and it gets as bad as, as we think it'll get. And then we start seeing the regulations get rolled back. Um, people are, you know, we have a lot of reason to believe that this is going to be horrible. Um, that there, there should be no doubt in anybody's mind. Um, but there are still hundreds of lawmakers that would actually like to see some tangible evidence first. And they're not going to act until, you know, and it's, it's a human thing. Uh, you know, we're, we're just, we're not going to spring into action until the building is actually on fire. <laughs> and for a lot of people, for potentially millions of, of vapor consumers, that's what it's going to take. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. But uh, don't think that CASA or SFADA or AVA or, or any, a num any of a number of other organizations, don't think that they're not working really hard on this. This is industry to some. This is what changed their lives to others. You don't just give up on that sort of thing. That I, that I firmly believe. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess that's it. Uh, unless you want to talk about Ron Johnson's letter, uh, Senator Johnson's letter. Um, I think maybe we'll talk about it next week because tomorrow, okay. tomorrow is the deadline for FDA to respond to that. Yeah. Um, so I, I will be curious <laughs> what kind of response uh, that they're going to come up with. Well, um, you did hear when they said they were going to respond to him privately, didn't you? Am I the only one that saw that on their oh, I know. Twitter? Oh, I, I, I totally missed that. Um, yeah, they said on their Twitter that it was, it was a governmental matter and they were going to respond to him privately. I'm like, what? what? That's not going to go well for them, I think. I think people are going to demand transparency in that, and I don't blame them. They have every right to have transparency in that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, response. that's kind of, kind of what we have. I mean, I guess they're going to make us FOIA it, so... Um, I'm well, sure. I'm sure Greg or Jeff Steyer already has that typed up. Oh yeah, fire up the FOIA machine, man. That's some good yeah. stuff. Yeah. So yeah, and I guess that's it for this week, Alex. Yeah, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but uh, we'll hopefully be able to catch it next week. And um, and yeah, thank you, thank you thank for you. having having me on. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for everything you do for us, Alex. Have a good night, and we will see you next week. Yep. Good night. Good night. So, a little bit longer of a CASA update this week. But, you know, we missed <laughs> last week, but that's okay. Yeah, you got two weeks worth to... Yeah. We did, yeah. And I think it was interesting, even though it went a little bit off topic, but not completely. Didn't seem like people were jumping off the channel, so... <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't boring this week and it, it's not because you know, I think people um, people are interested in this because it affects us all so tell me about what's going on with the TPD uh, well that's a complicated issue because yeah well for a start <laughs> TPD yeah it's now in effect basically um, it started on the 20th of May. Right. Uh, 
But every country in Europe, despite despite the EU being about market harmonisation, sure. that, that's their guiding principle. Mm -hmm. Every single country is enacting it differently. <laughs> so, yeah. so in as much as the EU was supposed to be a harmonising force, allegedly. Um, it wound up being like the United States in that each member state gets to enforce at will, basically. Yes. Yes. Lovely. That's so helpful. The UK, as far as I'm aware, has the most liberal interpretation of the TVD. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to get away with things that most of Europe isn't going to be able to. Mm -hmm. uh, yet we're st still going to have the nicotine strength limits and the bottle size limits and all that kind of nonsense but we're doing better than a lot of the countries where basically everything's going to be banned um yeah well slovenia austria many other places yeah no internet sales no cross-border sales um everything's off the shelves because you know they want the documentation on it now you know um the interesting one in the UK mm -hmm. is there is something in the House of Lords called a fatal motion. Right. Um, so Lord Cullinan, who's made a lord recently, right. because he used to be a member of the European Parliament for the Conservatives and was indeed one of the people who worked on the TPD. Mm -hmm. But he's dropped a motion in the House of Lords, basically... It's called a fatal motion because it basically states, stop this law. Nice. <laughs> and it can't be sent back to the Houses of Parliament to be discussed. It's basically a stop this law. No discussion. Uh, block it. Um, and that's going to be discussed anytime soon. I don't know. I can't remember the date the discussion is going to have and the vote. Right. So there's a possibility that it's going to get torpedoed in the UK completely. Um, Wouldn't that be a shame? Well, it would go back to the Houses of Parliament because it's an EU directive. Therefore, mm -hmm. unless the UK government are happy to pay fines to the EU, uh, they're going to have to bring in the TPD. But it does mean they're going to have to go back to the... Go back to the drawing board and rewrite all their proposals. Not the EU, the British government. Um, well, but it, but to add to the complexity, you see, uh, there's this whole EU exit referendum coming. Yes, up. there is. <laughs> so, yeah, there's going to be lots of twisting and turning on this one. But uh, vapors, you'll be unsurprised to learn, dear listeners. <laughs> have managed to write to 100% of the House of Lords. There's 835 of them or something. But every single one of them has been contacted uh, and Excellent. being told to vote for this fatal, va uh, fatal motion. Awesome. Uh, there's been a couple of negative responses. You know, there's always going to be... Um, there's always a Nancy but, Pelosi in the House. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, they've all been contacted. <laughs> Good. And Good. not all by the same people either. There's a lovely Good. spreadsheet, 
Oh, right, you look up and see who wrote to which lord. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, hey, I, you guys I, I, are really... I wrote to some lords. Yeah, picked cool. some Scottish ones because you know. Yeah, they represent so, you. So yeah, the TPDs technically in force, uh, <laughs> but the UK because we're so liberal. We're not going to see any real effects from it for the next six months. Okay. Um, and it's a year before they'll, you know, it's May next year before they'll start removing stuff off the shelves. Okay. So, yeah. So you have a little bit of time. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, at least you've got some sort of breathing room. Yeah. And, you know, you, you lot seem to have it together. Now, you have a plan, you work on it, everybody does their part, it helps. Well, as you say, especially in the UK, we, we have a history of um, peasant uprising. So, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, uh, yeah, not something to be taken lightly, and it's a long history. Yes. British history is very interesting. Um, okay, there were things I said I was going to talk about tonight, so, okay, um... Here's one. Graduates asked to mime throwing caps in the air for safety's sake. Law students at Britain's University of East Anglia have been told not to throw their motorboards in the air upon graduating. It's just too dangerous. Instead, they're being asked to mime the gleeful tossing with the caps to be photoshopped in later for an added fee of about $12. I guess as law students, these young folks should understand better than anyone else the university's desire to avoid all the pain and suffering and litigation that accrue from falling hats. That being said, the Chronicle of Higher Education found one case in roughly a millennium of higher education wherein a student sued a university for cap-inflicted injuries. Yale University appears to be the only American institution of higher education ever sued for a mortarboard injury. A motion filed in 1984 in Connecticut Superior Court describes how a commencement guest, one Molly Levinston, was struck in the eye by the sharp corner of a cap. The court held that a mortarboard was neither inherently dangerous nor more likely to cause injury if improperly used than was any other angular object that thus it was not a dangerous instrumentality. And yet the East Anglia cap cap, that is the cap on the throwing of caps, is not even the first in Britain. The local Norwich newspaper, The Tab, got a hold of the university's letter to its students, which noted that another school had paved the wary way. The hats in the air photograph is great fun, at, and at just at eight pounds extra is a fantastic value. We'll be asking everyone to mime the throwing of their hats in the air, and we will then Photoshop them in above the group before printing. As well as being safer, this will have the added advantage that even more of the students' faces will be seen in this photograph. Please see the sample below from the University of Warwick, which was taken in this way. So, hats off, or on, to Britain for coming up with a brand new way to transform a time-honored young person's tradition into a minefield of worry, regulation, and expense, draining the joy from a peak experience by kowtowing to inflated fears of nearly non-existent danger. Well done. Yes, you'll be unsurprised to learn 
it's the UK. They've had the piss taken out of them mercilessly ever since this broke. <laughs> oh, come on. It, it's funny. It's funny. Yeah. And what's even worse is the story that that links out to, which I was going to read, but it's so terrible. I just want to slap the person who wrote it yeah. in in the 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 Local higher education newspaper. journal. Yeah. It was yeah. it Some was of the papers are really pudly written. Uh, yeah. So I, I didn't even bother with it. I thought that would be funny. Um that was that was the moment of levity for this evening and now we're gonna get on to money because like I told Alex earlier I I like money. The world financial system does anybody know who Nomi Prinz is? Okay. I'll answer my own questions. Nomi Prinz is someone who worked on Wall Street for a very long time and then just went, fuck it, and walked away. Um, she's an investment banker. She's a very smart person. I think she sits on one of the boards of the Federal Reserve. It might be the New York Board of the Federal Reserve. So this was an interesting thing that she had written about the financial system. Oh, and today there was an article in the New York Times. I didn't, because this is, some of this is last week's notes. Um that talked about there's a bunch of $100 million homes on the market that aren't selling because, you know, rich people don't want to lose any of their money. Um, but the last time this happened, things went quite badly. And this is the world financial system. Um, written by Nomi Prince. Before we head for summer and the endlessly looming over-covered fall election, let's take a moment. Consider the desperate measures the four most powerful central banks have taken this year to push their artisanal money, products, and policies to the limit, keeping markets, banks, and, in their minds only, economies afloat through artificial manipulation, stimulation, and value fabrication. Sears' central bank interventions have exhibited more of a bipolarity than ever before. Speeches indicate one view one minute, another the next. What is said publicly for global consumption and privately for national intakes varies. And fighting is escalating within the hallowed walls at monetary policy meetings. The Federal Reserve is trying to keep it all together, but cracks in the facade of stability it is selling are growing wider and appearing with more ferocity. But volatility can be contained intermittently, but not forever. Follow the rhetoric. As I've discussed, this phrase phase began when the Fed raised rates a smidge at the end of 2015, then backtracked after realizing it couldn't control the Armageddon that would issue in the event of an actual tightening policy. Following an 18% stock market drop in the Standard & Poor's 500 from December 16th through February 11th and a dismal January, Chairwoman Janet Yellen equivocated. Global economy, she maintained, retained, remained too weak, like this was new. The other three central banks quickly fell into line, offering rate reductions, bond purchasing programs, and required reserve reductions for national banks. The result, by the end of April 18th, the Dow Jones had risen above 18,000 points for the first time since July 2015. Since mid-February, the Standard & Poor's left 500, 500 left 15%. China got big points in the business press for showing a 6.9% annual GDP growth for 2015. It was the worst result in 25 years. That's still impressive relative to other emerging countries. China is doing better than people think. Its government and central bank pockets are deep. 
European Central Bank head Mario Degari, aka Super Mario, unleashed an overdrive monthly buying spree, expanding ECB's quantitative easing program 33% from 60 billion to 80 billion euro per month, and inviting corporate bonds into the tent. The Bank of Japan followed the ECB into negative interest rate territory and like the ECB, began expressing the bizarre view that negative interest rates do what zero interest rates couldn't. What all was said but not done, a few new and more desperate themes poked above the parapet of the three major non-federal banks. Monetary policy is great, but it's not enough. Oops, fiscal policy must follow. To me, this signals the last act of the artisanal money show that has begun. The blame game will take us to the final curtain. An end to this game. So how long can we go on? Will global financial systems crack and liquidity die? Or will the Fed and its cohorts keep this going as the little people get sucked into a false sense of last-minute security until it all comes crumbling down? I think the latter. The issue is always is timing. The banks are loaded with quantitative easing in Zurip and Nirup. Will the Fed hit out it out of the park before things come crashing down? Will pitch hitters from the other three teams do the deed? Will the games be rained out? And we do it all over again tomorrow. Stakes are high because of the beginning of this year showed what happens if just one player, one central bank, doesn't do its part. What's ahead for the rest of 2016? This is the interesting part. The answer lies partly in two back-to-back -back events that took place in Washington in April. The first was a last-minute, non-public, no-transcripts-disclosed meeting between Yellen and President Obama. There was no mention of the meeting in the Fed's website, all press releases section. Announcement of the 3 p.m. Monday meeting at the Oval Offices was made by the White House on Sunday night. Vice President Joe Biden was also scheduled to attend, I guess for the comic levity. Um, the second was a joint press release two days later from the Fed and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. It effectively indicated that seven of the eight systematically important, too-big-to-fail U.S. banks would need another huge bailout, as opposed to the cheap money that lubricates them now in a crisis. Let's dig a little deeper. On April 11th, Yellen attended an unscheduled secret meeting with Obama at the White House. The markets and business media launched on into overdrive speculation as to what it could mean. The Fed offered no explanation. The White House posted a vague morsel claiming the encounter was part of an ongoing dialogue on the state of the economy. They discussed both the near and long-term growth outlook, the state of the labor market, inequality, potential risks to the economy, both in the United States and globally. They also discussed the significant progress that has been made through the continued implementation of Wall Street reform to strengthen our financial system and protect consumers. None of that sounds like something that can't be discussed on the phone or through an email, or even a text message, except the passage in bold, which is a complete lie. Here the plot thickens. The most re recent byproduct of the extensive coddling of the banking system has morphed into a political tool for extending the Clinton-slash-Obama-slash-Clinton administrations. On April 13th, two days later, the FDIC and Fed noted that five of the eight systematically important U.S. banks had failed to deliver adequate 2015 and legally required as to the Dodd-Frank Act quote-unquote living wills or resolutions in the event of another financial crisis. The Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System and the FDIC jointly determined that 
each of the 2015 resolution plans of the Bank of America, Bank of New York, Mellon, J.P. Morgan Chase, State Street, and Wells Fargo was not credible or would not facilitate an orderly resolution under the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, the statutory standard established in Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Acts, meaningless deadlines. They gave these five firms until 1 October 2016 to address their quote-unquote deficiencies, but they have until 1 July 2017 to file another quote-unquote living will. Um, More likely, they will be given a clean bill of health in October into the general election to complete the fantasy of the Fed and Obama administration fixing the crisis, economy, Wall Street, and the universe. The agency has also identified weaknesses in the 2015 resolution plans of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. The FDIC determined that Goldman Sachs' plan was not credible or did not facilitate an orderly resolution. The Fed concurred Morgan Stan- for Morgan Stanley's plan. If you're keeping score, that's seven of the eight banks that could recreator the economy. Who's left? Both agencies identified shortcomings for Citigroup to address Yet they gave a firm, at which Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin has a plump position in the build-up to 2008 crisis, as did Obama's current Treasury Secretary and Deputy Secretary for Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State Jack Lew, the only thumbs up. Citigroup, that's what we're going with. We're screwed. Figure I'll hold off on reading the rest of that, but you kind of get the picture, right? Yeah. We're screwed. Every, yeah, we're screwed. We're, we're screwed. So seven of the eight banks that took down an entire planet's fucking economy are ready to do it again. Yep. That's basically the takeaway from yeah, that. I mean, yeah, it's 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 so good. They were legally told they had to fix issues, and they haven't. They can't. And the government isn't doing anything about upholding the law they brought in. Yeah. To sh- I think basically they write laws in this country to shut people the hell up. Yeah. I, I basically, any law that constrains big business is just written to shut us the hell up. And it does nothing to penalize them. It does nothing to make them toe the line. It does nothing to protect you. It's just to shut you up. Okay. And there's another one. I'm going to not really read the rest of it, but, you know, here we go. One of the biggest private pension funds in the country is almost out of money and fresh out of options. The central state's pension fund has no new plan to avoid insolvency. Fund director Thomas Nyhan said this week, without government funding, the fund will run out of money in 10 years, he said. At that time, pension benefits for about 407,000 people could be reduced to virtually nothing, he told workers and retirees in a letter sent Friday. In a last-ditch effort, the central, central state's pension plan sought government approval to partially reduce the pensions of 115,000 retirees and future benefits for 155,000 current workers. The proposed cuts were steep, as much as 60% for some, but it wasn't enough. Earlier this month, the Treasury Department rejected the plan because it found it would not actually head off insolvency. The fund could submit a new plan, but decided this week 
There's no way to successfully save the fund and comply with the law. The cuts needed would be too severe. Normally, when a multi-employer fund like the Central States runs out of money, a government insurance fund called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation kicks in so retirees still receive some kind of benefit. But that's not a great solution in this case. For one thing, the amount is smaller than what pensioners would have received under the Central States Reduction Plan and is based on a number of years of retiree worked. A retiree would receive a maximum of $35.75 a month for each year worked, according to the fund's website. That amounts to um, $1,072.50 a month for a retiree who worked 30 years. But there's another problem. The PG, PB, GC itself is underfunded and can't be expected to cover all the retirees in the central state's pension fund. The fact that the PBGC is also running out of money means our participants may see their pension funds ultimately reduced to virtually nothing when the fund runs out of money, Nyan said in his letter. Only government funding, either to the central state's fund directly or through the PBGC, can fix the problem, he said. The central state's pension fund covers workers and retirees for more than 1,500 companies across a range of industries, but most of its retirees were truck drivers. A lot of the fund's companies went bankrupt after the trucking industry was deregulated in the 1980s. That's part of the reason the fund is in trouble now. It's currently paying out $3 for every $1 it takes in. Although the Treasury Department rejected proposed cuts, Secretary Jack Lew acknowledged its decision does not resolve the problem. He urged Congress to address the remaining issues. Yep. Uh, yeah, the whole, the whole Western world has huge pension black holes. It does. Um, you know. It, it comes up all the time. Um, mm -hmm. One of the oldest chain stores in the UK, British Home Stores, Right. Is basically up shit creek. Um, they're looking for yeah. a new buyer, mm -hmm. but part of its problem is several, you know, hundreds of millions shortfall in its pension scheme. You know. So yeah, governments tell tell workers, oh, you should have a pension. You know, get ready for your retirement. Oh yeah, yeah, and do nothing to stop these pension schemes going bankrupt. You know, a lot of them, well, put it this way, Hillary Clinton's darling daughter married a man who ran a hedge fund and basically ran it out of money. Yeah. And nothing was done to this man. This, hap this shit happens all the time. Yep. The people that you hired to watch the hen house used to work for the government. Then they used to work for the banks since this revolving door of regulatory capture. So nothing's being done. Nothing's stopping these people from getting all the money in the pension funds and just leaving a big fuck you to the people. Just like Congress did when they took your Social Security money. Congress was supposed to take that money, invest it in the stock market, and grow it. And instead, they pulled money out at their whim for their little fucking pet projects. And they did it time and time again. And yet... The CIA has a venture capital firm. How does something that's supposed to help people plan for retirement and sick health not have the same sort of thing? And yet it doesn't. Even though 
it's government and we're all supposed to be in this together. We're all paying in our taxes and they're supposed to be taking care of us. All they're really taking care of is big businesses and they're screwing you. It's kind of, it's kind of a classic story. Yeah. Um, this, this happened once before. It'll happen again. It's the turn of the wheel. It's the, the circle completing itself. The thing itself. I find really sad is loads of people um, are still so blind and naive about their pension. It's like, oh, I've been working 40 years and paying this pension. I'll be fine when I retire. <laughs> Let me put really? it to you. Really? Can I put it, there are I put no it? guarantees, I'm afraid. That could be gone long before you retire. Yeah. Can I put it this way? I have to retire five minutes before I die. That'll yeah. be about all the time I have to retire, and I'll be lucky that they don't dock my pay so they can fucking bury me. Well, I haven't, I haven't been able to work for the last ten years, so I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, um, I am. I, I am going to be elderly and broke. Uh, continuing well, my scheme of being broke. Um, um, we're all going to be continuing our scheme of being yes. broke, I think. And, uh, hey, I get much, much success to us on that plan, I guess. Uh, yeah. I don't really want to retire, but I don't want to work in retail anymore. That's for goddamn sure. That's also true. I might not make it to retirement, but I would really hate to stick the family, the remaining family I have, with the bills I'm responsible for now. Well, I mean, I the 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 only the only thing that enters my mind occasionally, and mm -hmm. I'll have to deal with it closer to the time because I know the average age of death in my family. Uh, mm -hmm. We're quite regular on that score. <laughs> um, <laughs> is the paying for the funeral thing? Because I wouldn't want to stick family and friends with that. I just you do get insurance schemes that can pay for your funeral though so yeah. well so. you know Dan and I are, are the last there are no more of us after we pass out of this phase of existence there will be none of our progeny you know there is no one to take care of us like we're taking care of our family oh well you you don't need a worry so then, we're you know. That's oh just, yeah, we can just when, blow when each die, other's heads off. When you die, yeah, it doesn't matter, yeah, because <laughs> they can't get anyone else on the hook for the bills. Yeah. Uh, well, you can't get blood from a turnip. Yeah. But um, you know, I kind of thought I would have the opportunity to at least put some money into insurance for elderly care for us, yeah. and I, I won't even have the opportunity to retire, not even for a year, not even for five years or six months. I will have to keep working until I die. And that is the reality for all of us. The last generation that got to retire were the baby boomers. Yep. I don't think many of us are going to have that option. So I guess my advice is, I mean, I fucking hate my job. I need to find something fulfilling. And that would be my advice to everyone. Find something fulfilling. Because if you're going to do it until you're too arthritic to do anything anymore and you're crippled up and dying in pain... You better make it something you love. Or just get really cranky. <laughs> I am really cranky. I was in training to be a hermit. Now I have to work till I retire. <laughs> God damn it. Um, well, retire. Yeah, five minutes before I die. So, yeah. I have to work for, God, another 45 years or so. 
I'm not happy. I'm in the I'm in the lucky situation where yeah, yeah, I'm, I've probably only got another thirty years, yeah, average age of death in my family, as I say. So well. yeah, Scottish, we're short lived. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad thing. I I look at what's going on around me now, and I don't, I don't feel too um, sparkly about what's going to happen next. There's that. I, I'm uh, also, yeah, the the cost of funerals is ridiculous these days. Well, um, you know, there's... My father had the most incredibly basic funeral we could possibly mm-hmm. have. Right. And it was thousands of pounds. You know, I gotta tell you, there's something about... Uh, the funeral industry, they make a lot of money. Oh, yeah. They really do. I, I really thought about training to be a funeral director i think i would be really good at it um because i don't like most people but i feel very bad for people who are in pain or people who have suffered I have a lot of empathy for people and i think i would be good at that and maybe that's something i could go into but what i was going to say is so i did a lot of research um about death and, and funerals and stuff if you're willing to transport a body to a crematorium yourself it only costs a thousand dollars here to have somebody cremated. Yeah. Just walk in and there you go. I I, most I, I, I agree with what Billy Connolly once said. Like he doesn't give a shit about the afterlife or anything. And and his idea was just stick sticks of dynamite up my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll take care of it, yeah. I think <laughs> I think the funniest thing, the onion had this thing um, where they were talking about pension shortfalls and they were talking about how they couldn't afford like health care for people anymore. So they had um, they had this Medicare live life like a cartoon program yeah. where they encouraged seniors to smoke sticks of dynamites and run off the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and instead of giving people benefits, they used to give them um, coupons good for, you know, um, horrible rot gut liquor and back alley tattoos <laughs> in the hopes they would die well, quicker. All, all That's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. All, all you need to say about the whole pension crisis thing and the burden of elderly care, which is now the world's most expensive thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, China are really going to have issues with it very soon. Uh, all I, I'd say about that is a classic movie quote. Soylent green is people. Oh Jesus! You know, the Be- worst thing I a certain age and yeah. Ew, <laughs> you know, and that, you know, ew, yeah. <laughs> what, what was I gonna say? Um, there was there was a film a few years ago. Oh God, what was it called? And it was it took place in like five or six different times in history and it was all these same people and Tom Hanks was in it and a bunch of other people were in it and one of the portions of it was future and I guess it was on earth and it was mostly Asian and it was this fast food restaurant and you worked so many years and everybody looked alike but you worked so many years and then your woman you got to retire and they sent you off on this great journey they didn't really send you off on this great journey they sent you to a, a plant where you were made into burgers. Yeah. Some pretty fucked up stuff. 
uh, I don't really want to live to see that. I'm, I'm good with how things are now. Well, you things know, don't if, have to if, get too much more dystopian. Any country's going to do it, I'd put money on it being China. Mm. Well, what the hell? They cut open the Lung Gong while they're still alive and take their organs out of them. Yep. They don't really think of their people as people. No. That's the problem with government. Having any form of government reduces you as a human being to a number. It's not a way I want to deal with anybody. And I certainly don't want to be in power, but I would rather have more power over me than they have over me. Yes, 42. Whatever you say. <laughs> Just saying. Okay. I guess on that cheerful note, <laughs> Muppets and an advert. Okay. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.